First preacher for tonight is Nathan. So, Nathan, you come and give us what the Lord's laid on your heart. All right. I guess by being selected to go first, you're, there's an assumption that I'm going to end on time. But uh, I definitely do have a tactical advantage here uh, because I won't feel pressure to stop as hard as Bradley will. <laughs> Feel no pressure. Okay. <laughs> uh, I would like everyone to turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Been reflecting on this psalm some since we started to memorize it. And this psalm is very powerful. And it gets down to the heart of life. It's down to the essence of life. It's, it's a summary, in many ways, of the purpose of life. And I want to read uh, all 22 verses and then uh, point out a couple of things, draw a couple uh, points out, and uh, hopefully it will be a challenge to you tonight. Psalm 103. Starting verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame, He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting unto, upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye His angels, that excel in strength, that do His commandments, hearkening unto the voice of His word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye His hosts, ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all the places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The theme of this psalm 
is repeated over and over again. And it is a command to bless the Lord. But I want us to consider what does it mean to bless the Lord? When we think and we use an everyday terminology, well, that was such a blessing, or he was such a blessing to me, or she was such a blessing to me. In the common usage, that phrase, that, that word, bless, is dumbed down uh, in, in many ways. So what's he talking about here? He can't be talking about the way that we use it, because that would imply that there's maybe some material benefit that we could bestow on the Lord, or there's some word that we could say to him that would make him rejoice or feel better or be inspired to do better. That's how we use it in our lives. Literally, the word bless in this uh, passage is, means to praise, to glorify for benefits received, to kneel. To praise, to glorify, for benefits received, to kneel. When I read that definition, a thought came to mind of you know, the sovereigns that reigned over mankind you know, back, you could say, during the Middle Ages. You know, really all through human history until the American Revolution. That was how people lived their lives. You had a monarch... And you had this feudalistic society where the monarchs and the lords, they owned the property and the peasants worked it. And that was a very determined structure. And there was requirements for how you approach the sovereign. They called him the sovereign, the one who, who ruled over the dominion. And there, was, there were ceremonies of, of the way that you approached. You would glorify the sovereign and, oh, king, live forever. Okay, you, you heard this phrase? That's how you would approach the king. Oh, king, live forever. You remember in Daniel, um, whenever the king uh, came to see if Daniel was okay, what did Daniel say to him? Oh, king, live forever. The very guy that threw him in the, in the uh, den of lions because he was a coward, right? The very king, he, you know, oh, king, live forever. That was, that was a, an adoration. That was a, a uh, glorifying of the monarch, the sovereign that reigned over them. And this would have been something very familiar to people gone by. We don't really think about it that way. To kneel. Along those same lines, the, the sovereign, they would have, whenever you came into the presence of the king or the queen or any royalty, it was customary for you to make obeisance to them in some form. It was, it was kneeling. Sometimes it was bowing. In, in the British court, it was mostly bowing. But there was some kind of physical uh, manifestation of their rank over you. And sometimes this bowing and this kneeling was done in a way that was outwardly very prestigious, very showy. It looked sincere. But imagine being a knight of the realm and having to bow before a man like Prince John. Right? In the back of my mind, if I was a knight serving under the realm of Prince John, there would be a little part of me in the back saying, this guy's an idiot. Right? I'm going to kneel because that's what I have to do. I'm going to make obeisance to the sovereign. Oh, king sovereign. Oh, okay. But on the inside, I'm like, oh, what an idiot. 
Why? Because he didn't deserve that respect. He didn't earn that respect. But if you think about maybe a guy like Charlemagne or Charles Martel, okay? Maybe someone a little more well-known. King Richard, right? A lion-hearted king who led his men into battle and would himself fight hand-to-hand with the Saracens, who would actually be on the battlefield leading those men. When you knelt before the king, when you did King Richard obeisance, you did it sincerely because his respect was earned. His place of leadership and royalty, that was earned. How much more so is God's royalty, is God's dominion, His sovereignty earned and rightly due unto His name? There is no sovereign, there is no ruler that could deserve it more. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in this passage, we're commanded to bless the Lord, O my soul. It's very personal. He is deserving of it, and we are commanded to kneel before Him, to glorify Him, because He is worthy And it says, bless His holy name. His name is great. It's the first reason why we should bless Him. His name is great. When I I use the illustration of the sovereigns and those that maybe earned respect or those that possibly didn't, our God is deserving of all praise and adoration. When you think of the great might of our God, and you think of how great is His name exalted, just think of the creation that He made. The great vastness of creation, the great vastness of the universe and space and the planets. And when He's describing the creation, it says, and He made the stars also. How great is our God When you think about the intricacies of nature and how everything works together in harmony. I talked about this a little bit in Sunday school class in in Proverbs 3 where it says, "The, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. And how everything works together in harmony. And how if we were a little bit closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were a little bit further away, we'd all freeze. How that... Uh, the water cycle sustains life on the earth. Now, all these things God formed, and we think of the vastness of all of these things, the intricacies of all these things, and the Lord spoke and it was. How great is His name. When you consider His absolute authority over the creation that He made, to do with it as He will, to turn the water to wine, to say, peace be still. When he met with the children of Israel there on Mount Sinai, 
and he appeared to them with great thunderings and lightnings and clouds. You read that passage in Exodus 19. That's pretty frightful if you actually think about being there and watching that. What a tremendous display. That's, our, that's the great God. His name is great. His power is great. And we owe Him. It is right for us to kneel before Him, to praise and to glorify and extol Him. He is worthy. We need to acknowledge His place because His name is great. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. We need to bless the Lord because His name is great, but we also need to bless the Lord because His benefits are good. First, number one, sin forgiven. We need to bless the Lord because He forgives sin. Remember when Jesus healed the man who was sick of the palsy? He let him down and He healed him. And, he, and, the, and the Pharisees were, were shocked. And He said, this is nothing. If I, can, if I say, you know, uh, I forget how He said it, but um, thy sins be forgiven thee is what He said. And they were, they were who is this guy that forgives sins? God's the only one that can forgive sins. And He had all authority to forgive sin. We take that for granted. That passage in 1 John 1, nine, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's very true. But have you ever think about if God was a little bit less in His character than He is? How weary would he be of us coming to him again and again and again? Lord, forgive me. I forgave you that once already. Sorry. He doesn't do that. He forgiveth our iniquities. To the extent that in verse number 11, it says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. The east will never meet the west. Just in case you didn't know that, there is no west and east pole. You can't find the spot. The point is, God removes it. Only He has that authority to do that. Only He has the character to do that. He forgives our iniquities. His benefits are good. Number two, He gives us good health. Not everybody in the world has the best health. Okay? Some people, you know, we think about maybe some tragic situation where maybe they're born without an arm or, or they were born and one of their kidneys didn't function and they have a hard time throughout life. And you think, wow, that must be really hard. But if you remember about the man that was born blind in the New Testament, and the disciples asked Jesus, who did sin that this man was born blind? He said, nobody. But the, the glory of God would be declared in him. Now we forget that there's a sin, that we live in a sin-cursed earth. And that there's reasons, there, there are, that's basically the reason for, for, for 
sickness and death and disease. For the wages of sin is death. That's how all that came, came about because of man's sin. But if you think about all of us here, we're in pretty good shape. Able to walk around, move around. I think of my own life. I, I, I think of myself as a you know, strong, strapping young man. I'm capable. Young, I'm heffy, right? I fell off a roof when I was 15 years old. There's no reason I shouldn't be paralyzed right now. I can't explain it. Praise the Lord. He's so merciful to us. How many times, like, I prick myself on a rusty nail, right? Oh, don't get tetanus. Why? Because we have these, you know, modern medicine. You know, we have inoculations, things like that. God gives us knowledge and understanding into these things. You know, we don't really think about these, these things. We take our health for granted. We get take it for granted until all of a sudden, oops, I can't do anymore. That good benefit is from our God. He heals all, all our diseases. His benefits are good. There's restoration and exaltation. In verse 4, you think about David's life when you read that verse. Think about David's life. I think about the time that he went down to the Philistine camp. And his life was literally re- redeemed from destruction. He goes down to the Philistines, he's compromising with the enemy, and then all of a sudden, oh, we're going up to battle against the Israelites. And David's expected to go fight and kill his own brethren. Oops. The Lord delivered him from that. How many times did we go down a, a, a road or a, or a persist in a sin and we hear a message, maybe, that gets our attention. Or maybe we read in our, in our daily devotion something that challenges us and points that out in our life. And we're redeemed from that destruction, that consequence of that sin, that way in which we were persisting. That's the Lord working in our lives. He redeems our life from destruction and He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He exalts us. Again, I think of David. He's almost going to war against his own people and then the Lord delivers him from that path of destruction and then he becomes the next king of Israel. He's exalted. Only the Lord could do that. And he does that in our lives. Number four, the provision of good food. Never before in the history of mankind has anybody ever imagined what we have today. Kings and queens a hundred years ago didn't live this good. And they would have a whole staff of, of cooks and servants and they could imagine go down to food line and see the vast spread that's there. We have that at our fingertips. David knew about good food. David knew what it was like to not have good food. Imagine out there living on the run. you got 600 guys and, and their women and their children and everybody tagging along with you. You survive off the land with that many people. You see how well you eat. 
the Bible doesn't go into detail about it, but being on the run is not really good for you. Okay? You're living on the dodge. That's tough. You can see a physical manifestation of that in people when they live like that. It's hard on their body. And it says, so that their youth is renewed like the eagle. I don't really have any time, but if you look up the eagle and how he molts his feathers every year, it's an interesting poetic illustration of, of how uh, we are renewed when we are sustained, when God satisfies our mouth with good food and, and we, we have a renewed energy and we have a, a renewed vitality through that. It's, it's a really interesting study. I encourage you to go look that up on your own. So his benefits are good. We should bless the Lord. We should bless the Lord because his character is perfect. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment on all that are oppressed. God's justice is perfect. Again, you think of think of David's uh, situations: being on the run, falsely accused of treason by Saul, being chased all around to Israel. God saw David through that. We might think that we're hard put put upon, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe at home. If we wait patiently through that, God's justice is perfect. How does First Peter say about when you suffer wrongly and you're being falsely accused? He said, when you take that patiently you have reward in heaven for that. God's justice, it's perfect, it's good. God's leadership is perfect. He made, his, he made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. God manifested Himself to Moses. He manifested Himself to the children of Israel. He communicated to them effectively and explained His purpose for bringing them up out of the land of Israel. He was going to establish a nation through them. And He led them, even though they rebelled over and over and over again. This is His character. His mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious. How many times did He suffer with the children of Israel? And they're murmuring and complaining. Oh, we don't like the manna. Oh, we don't like the quail. Oh, we don't want, we all want to go back to the leeks and the garlics and everything of Egypt. Oh, we don't have any water. Oh, we can't go in. We can't kill the giants. Over and over again. And yet he was merciful to them. His grace abounded to them. His grace abounded to David. These illustrations that I've been using. God's grace, God's mercy. This is part of his character. Look at verse number 9. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. There are times when we persist in our way, and he extends mercy, and we persist. What happens then? God writes us off. Nathan Byler is reject. Stamp, send him on. No. Chastening. 
He will not always chide forever, neither will he keep his anger. God will chasten us, which is part of his character. It's part of his justice. It's part of his love. He will chasten us. And then verse number 10 speaks of forgiveness. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. When, we, when, we, when God chastens us and we repent of that thing, when we get it right, God doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. What's the wages of sin? Death. When we've sinned against God, He restores us. He forgives us. His character is perfect. And then is the other reason why, reason number four, that we need to bless the Lord. His care is sustaining. Verse 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Number one, he understands human nature. He understands that we're greedy. He understands that we're fickle. He understands that we are lustful. He understands that it is our nature, it's our practice and our choice to sin against Him. He knows our frame. But He cares for us. Despite all of that, cares for us. He knows that we are dust. You know, that would be kind of insulting to call someone, you're just dirt. Right? It's kind of true. You know, got out of the dust of the earth, God formed man, the dust we are, the dust we shall return. Okay? That's what we are. Yet he cares for us. Use another another illustration. He he's just hammering this point home to kind of get us in the right frame of mind. We're grass. Wow, what a glorious thing. We are grass. Getting better now. From lawnsite.com, a healthy blade of grass has a forty day life cycle. Whoa. Yes. The eternal grass. This lifespan is drastically diminished by any number of circumstances. Heavy traffic, like your dog has this trail, right? He goes to the garage and to the pond, and he has this trail. He wears out, right? Grass dies. Can't, it can't handle it. People walking on it. Doesn't get enough sun. Grass will die. It doesn't get enough water. Grass will die. If it gets too much sun, grass will die. If it gets too much water, grass will die. But yet the Lord sustains all of those things in creation. When he compares us to grass, his care for us is sustaining. And then he describes, uses another illustration, the flower. I think he, he, he reserves this one for maybe the ones of ones that are better looking, right? Like the handsome or the beautiful, right? They're the flower and the rest of us are grass, maybe. I don't know. Just my thought. But uh, even the flower, right? It says... 
in the flower uh, of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place shall thereof shall know it no more. Now I got thinking about this, and I thought, oh, wow, well, I have rose bushes, and they, they come back every year. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the one flower, okay? That flower that was there this summer is not coming back again. It's a different flower, totally different one. And if you think about maybe how long that list lives, maybe a month, maybe two months, okay? And there it's gone. The place thereof shall know it no more. It's not going to do with the hummingbird any good. It's dead, okay? And that's who we are. He knows our frame. His care is sustaining them. He sustains our frail little selves. How great is our God. We should bless the Lord, number five, because His, His creation resounds in blessing to God. There in verse uh, 19, the Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens. His kingdom ruleth over all. He's talking about the kingdom of God. It's going to be revealed one day in physical manifestation when He rules from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. In the, in the Lord's Prayer that He uh, gave to the disciples and gave to, give to us, um, one of the things in there is Thy kingdom come. Okay? We're to pray that. And uh, the Lord has prepared that throne in the heavens and He's waiting for the, uh, the fullness of time uh, to bring that kingdom to pass. But even now it says, Bless the Lord, ye His angels, that excel in strength and do His commandments hearkening unto the voice of His Word. These great angelic beings that God has created, that excel in strength, that have this great power, they're right now singing praise to God. They're kneeling before Him. They hearken unto the voice of His Word. They bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, all ye His hosts, Who's that talking about? It's talking about the saints that have gone before that are in heaven right now. When, when Jesus comes back to the battle of Armageddon, when he establishes his kingdom, he comes back with a heavenly host. That's all the saints that have gone before, riding on white horses. There's a host in heaven right now of the saints that have gone before, of Abraham and Job and Isaac. George Washington, I think, is up there in the host. Ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. That's us. Should be us. It's our goal, right? To do His pleasure. To keep His commandments. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. All His works. Stuff. Rocks and hills and grass and dirt. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees when He came into the temp- into Jerusalem? the triumphal entry, and the priests told them, stop stop crying out. Stop praising His name. And Jesus turned to them and said, if they stopped, the rocks would cry out. Bless the Lord. And then He brings it all down to you. He brings it all down to me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Makes it personal. 
You know, a lot of times we can get, we could blend in with the we. We can blend in with the ministers and, and think, oh yes, all of us at Lighthouse Baptist Church, we are blessing the Lord. And somehow we overlook ourselves. We don't really analyze what we are doing to bless the Lord. How am I in my life kneeling before God, glorifying God, myself? And that's the application right there. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's personal. Your soul is the innermost part of who you are. That, you know, we have a physical manifestation, but the soul is who you are. Your, your characteristics, your desires. The Lord says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Okay, that's the soul. It's the same word. With all of your being. Praise God. Glorify God. Exalt God. Kneel before Him. I know I don't do that. How can we do this? Love the things that God loves? When I'm at work and I'm and I'm frustrated about something. I use this one a lot because this happens to me a lot. I'm not blessing the Lord. I'm not thinking about how is my attitude exalting the Lord right now. It's not. When I'm at work, do I give praise to God for things that He's done for me? Do I think of His benefits and express them to other people at work? Is it the characteristic of my life to acknowledge God in everything and recognize His rightful place. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's do that. All right. I'm going to be moving pretty quick. There's a lot I want to say. And uh, Nathan's not going to take my time away from me. So stay awake and uh, hold on. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Is my mic on? Turn to Matthew chapter 16. I asked Nathan to go first because I knew what he was going to be speaking about. And I thought it would be best to try to kick off of his topic. We're going to start reading in verse 21. <clears throat> Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, 
And then he shall reward every man according to his works. The title of my message is, is Following Christ, a Worthy Cause. And Nathan just told us about all the characteristics of our great God, all of the benefits that we have in our great and mighty Savior. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be praised. And Nathan made a statement about, about God not being the author of sin and, and you know, him loving us despite our sin. And God had nothing to do with, with sin. He had nothing to do with pain and suffering. The cost of man's sin cannot be overstated. The sufferings of the Holocaust, the Dark Ages, every plague man has been infected with, the burning of children on the altars of Moloch, abortion, world wars, suicide, divorce, loss of loved ones, any hardship, any trial that you've ever gone through, it's not because of God, it's because of our sin. It's because of man's sin. However, the amount of suffering inflicted upon man by these things is minuscule in light of the suffering Jesus endured on the cross. Jesus Christ chose to set aside His glory become sin for man, and be smitten by God the Father. Isaiah 53.10 tells us that because He took man's sin, our sins upon Him, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. The righteous, angry, jealous judgment of God was poured upon the sinless, holy Son of God who had done nothing wrong because man sinned. Jesus cried out from the cross in painful, bitter agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ became sin for man. He took our sins. And Jesus Christ was separated from his Father. Words cannot begin to describe, we cannot even begin to fathom the amount of suffering, the amount of pain that our Lord and Savior went through. Salvation is not cheap. He endured all of that for us. He endured all of that that we might have eternal life. It was and always will be impossible for man to save himself from the penalty of sin. That's why Christ came and died. Man cannot save himself by simply praying a prayer or keeping the law. No man can come unto the Father but by Christ. Christ is the way, He is the truth, and the life. Christ explains that to you and I in the clearest way He possibly could in this passage. Following Christ is man's only alternative to hell, but following Christ demands hardship and suffering. It demands endurance. But following Christ is a worthy cause. The afflictions, the suffering that we might face, are nothing to be compared with the sufferings that the Lord has already endured for us. The first thing, my first point, is following Christ demands self-denial and obedience. Look at verse 21 through 25 again. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elder and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So Jesus is explaining to his disciples the suffering, the cross, he's going to have to endure. But Peter didn't like that. He says, it says in verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. 
And that word rebuke there, it's, it's very sharp. It's, it's admonished. He began to admonish the Lord, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus' response to him is very interesting. He says, Jesus said to him, But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now Peter did not want anything to do with Christ's suffering at this point. Now Peter was looking for the Messiah. He was looking for Christ to set up his kingdom. He wanted to, to, to judge the world and, and, and have all the benefits of Christ's kingdom. But he wanted that without the suffering of the cross. He didn't understand. And Christ tried to explain that, explain the cross to him and how he must go. But Peter, Peter, Peter didn't like that. Peter wanted the benefits of salvation without the pain and the suffering that Christ must endure because of it. And Christ rebuked Peter in the strongest way he possibly could. He called him Satan. Now, when we want Christ but don't want His will, when we don't want to follow Him, if suffering is involved, it's really it's satanic. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. Jesus told His disciples in the strongest way He possibly could that if they desired to be one of His sheep, one of His disciples, it would require everything they had. They must give up their lives, their desires, their wants, and follow Him. You may say, well, that's, you know, that's a strong statement. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Look at verses 23 through 35, or 25 through 35. It says, And there went a great multitude with him. So there's a, a massive multitude following the Lord. And Jesus turned, it says, He turned and said unto, unto them, If any man will come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and count the cost, whether he has sufficient to, fin to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold him begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Down in verse 34, 35, Jesus said, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So what Jesus is telling this great massive multitude here is that if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you all the relationships that you have in your family. You need to be willing to give up. You need to be willing. You know, Jesus is not telling us that we need to hate our family. Obviously, Christ tells us that we're supposed to Scripture teaches that we're supposed to even love our enemies, but Christ is using hyperbole here that our love for the Lord ought to be so extreme, it ought to be so radical that our love for the Lord compared to our love for our wife, our, our husband, our children, looks like hate. 
Then he says, and you know, he, he says, um, you know, you must hate your own life also. So not only all those that you hold dear, he said, you need to be willing to, to, to not even value your own life if you're going to be my disciple. Then he says, for whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he tells the multitude this. He says, for which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down and counteth the cost? And he goes on to say, you know, you know, what kind of man would go to build a tower and not make sure he has the sufficient funds to be able to complete the tower? He's, what he's saying there is, is saying, you need to count the cost of being my disciple. You need to count the cost of following me. If you really want to be one of my sheep, if you really want to follow me, you better be sure. It's going to cost you. Now, this is not, this is, it's a very unpopular message, but it's, it's not unique. You know, Jesus made these statements over and over and over again. The, you know, but there's the example of the rich young ruler that came to Christ, and you know, he desired to, to know what he must do to obtain eternal life, and Jesus told him, go sell everything that you have and follow me. The Lord knew the young man loved money more than he loved him. And the Lord let him walk away for it. He gave him the demands. He did not pamper. He did not plead. He just said, you need to be willing to forsake and follow. In Luke 57 through 62, Jesus told a man that desired to bury his father. He desired to follow the Lord. But the Lord told him, uh, you know, he, he desired to, to follow the Lord, but desired he wanted to go bury his father first before he followed the Lord. This is the Lord's response to him. Let the dead bury their dead but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus says, no, you don't get to make, you don't get to make, you know, this isn't a negotiation. If you're going to be my disciple, let the dead bury their dead. Go and preach. Do as I ask. And to another man that desired to follow him, but wanted to go and tell his family goodbye first, the Lord's response was, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Christ demands us to follow Him, no matter the cost, no matter the hurt, no matter the suffering. Even unto death. Verses 24 and 25, back again in our text, Jesus said that we must take up our cross and follow Him. Now, in that day, it wasn't the, the disciples knew what a cross was. In Rome, they would sentence you to crucifixion. You were to pick up your cross and take it to the place you were to be crucified. You were to bear it on your back. That's what Jesus did. And to walk to your death. Jesus said, you need to pick up that cross and you need to follow me if you're going to be my disciples. So any man, there's no, there, there's no negotiation. But again, Peter, what did Peter want? Peter, Peter wanted to follow the Lord, but he didn't, want, he didn't want the Lord to suffer. He didn't want anything to do with suffering and pain and, and affliction or the cross. You know, obviously Peter grew. We can't be too hard on Peter. The Lord was, was very hard on him, but God is God. He can be. But later, later on, we know that Peter, they arrested him. He didn't care. He faced all kinds of persecution. He, and he told the people that were arresting him, he said, Christ, you're the ones that crucified him. He learned and he grew. 
and the Lord gives space and he gives time for us to grow in our understanding and we you know we don't always follow the Lord we oftentimes we do stumble and we do we we want comfort we don't like we don't like suffering we don't like pain but the Lord says take up your cross you know the disciples understood what picking up the cross meant, meant suffering struggle and eventually death what Christ demands of all of his followers is absolute obedience no matter the cost and Jesus said, you know, you're, if you're going to follow me, you're going to lose your life. And you know, this is what Paul meant in Galatians 1, uh, or 2.29. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, Paul did not live for himself. Paul was saying, I'm going to endure whatever affliction I'm, I have to endure. My life is no longer mine. Paul gave up his life. And that's what every follower of Christ is called to do, is to forsake their desires, forsake their want, and to follow, no matter the cost. Now, because of America's freedoms, the majority of professing Christians today are, are very soft. Now, this... This idea of, of following the Lord no matter the cost is, is it's not preached from pulpits anymore. Instead, we have this one, two, three, pray after me. And takes, there's, you know, it doesn't take anything to follow the Lord. Anybody can follow the Lord. Just come follow well, the Lord. Say, count the cost. So before you make that commitment, and obviously, we here know that, that salvation is a free gift. We cannot pay for our sins. That is impossible. That's why Christ had to come and die. But if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to accept that gift, there are... The Lord lays down. He said, you're going to have to follow me. No matter where I take you, no matter where I lead you, you're going to follow, even unto death. You know, the Christian life is not described as a cakewalk in Scripture. You go back and you look at from even the Old Testament through the New Testament of Christians. They had to endure hardship. They had to endure suffering. And that hardship and that suffering, again, is not Christ's fault. It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. And Christ endured so much more. He's worthy to be followed. There's so much to, to praise the Lord over. There's so many benefits we have. The Lord deserves to be followed. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, You cannot be Christ's servant if you are not willing to follow him, cross and all. What do you crave? A crown? Then it must be a crown of thorns if you are to be like him. Do you want to be lifted up? So you shall, but it will be upon a cross. It doesn't sound like a, just an, an easy... Just prayer that we pray. No, following Christ is hard. It's a commitment. No, Hebrews twelve twenty or two or Hebrews twelve verses two through three says, "Look unto Jesus, or looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him that, here's the word again, endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted in the blood, striving against sin. The word endure means to remain, to not flee, to commit. Christ committed himself from the cross. He did not flee from the cross. In fact, in the garden, what did Jesus pray? He said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Christ endured. He did not back away from the cross. He did not back away from becoming, for, becoming sin for man. He endured it. He said, Lord, if there be any other way, but Lord, if not, I'm willing. And that's the kind of commitment that you and I need to have to the Lord. He's worthy of it. You know, when the Pharisees came to kill Jesus, Peter drew out his sword, cut off the man's ear. The Lord's response to Peter was, Put up thy sword in thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? When we face hardships, when we face trials, when we face suffering, what is our response? Do we back down? Or do we say, no, I'm committed? 2 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, Thou therefore, here's that word again, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangled himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now we're in, we're in a spiritual battle. We're fighting. At least we're supposed to be. And the downfall of America is, I believe, is Christians aren't fighting anymore. They're too comfortable. They're not willing to, to, to face any type of suffering, any type of resistance, any type what for, for unity's sake. You know, they don't want to disagree. And we've been selling people. America has been selling this, this, this oh, it's so easy following Christ. It's, it's a free gift. Just take the free gift. Let's take the free gift. That Look at our country. It's full of people that profess to be followers of Christ, but they're not followers of Christ. They want the benefits like Peter they want the benefits of the Lord. They want the benefits of salvation, but they're not willing to endure. They're not willing to endure the hardness. They're not willing to follow the Lord wherever the Lord leads them. Now, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 1.8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony. And he's writing to Timothy here. Timothy is fearful. Paul says, be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God. Does that sound like just some easy gospel? No, Paul says endure the affliction of the gospel. It's hard. And you know, 2020 has, has we faced some hardships. We've, we look back at the year and we... we Somewhat just, we don't know what to think of it. And we can say, well, 2020 was just a horrible, terrible year. Well, I mean, quite frankly, we're, 2020 has been a great year. We've still been blessed. We've, think about all the, the blessings the Lord has done just in this church, the salvation of people, how much people have grown. 
obviously some horrible things have happened in our country. But the Lord has still been good and suffering and hardship. That's just a part of life. Now, Paul said, again, he said, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. He said, So because I'm following Christ, I'm suffering these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Salvation is a commitment. Paul committed his soul to the Lord. He committed his life to the Lord. And he says, he's, and Paul said, I know the Lord's able to keep my soul. He's able to keep what I've committed unto him. Paul didn't say, no, I, I'm strong and I'm enduring this persecution, I'm enduring this affliction, and I'm just a good soldier, and I'm doing it. No, he, he said, I know the Lord's able to keep me. Now, we'd be arrogant to say, you know, no matter what happens, I, I am, I'm, I'll never deny the Lord. That's what Peter did. We'd be foolish to say that. What we need to say is by the grace of God. God forbid that I would ever Deny my Lord and Savior. We should say, as Paul said, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. I will not back down. I will endure. I will fight the good fight. I will be a soldier. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in 2021. I don't know what you're going through now. I do know one thing, that Christ is worthy of following. I don't know what hardships are going to come for America in the next couple of years, couple of months, who knows. But I know Christ is still worth following. I don't know what suffering, what hurt, what burdens we're going to carry or we are carrying now. Christ is still worth following. We need to endure. We need to press. We need to commit. We need to follow the Lord. Now, Jesus said this. <clears throat> he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The burden of sin, the burden of the law, the burden of our lost state, all the consequences of our sin that I mentioned in the beginning, all of those things, they're wearisome. They're heavy. And Christ promises that any man that comes to Him, He can remove that burden. It doesn't mean that we don't we don't yoke up with Christ. He said, no, you're still going to yoke up with me. But He's able to keep us. We cannot do anything for our salvation. I know you know, you know that. But the Lord's able to keep us and help us. And you know, when we yoke up with Christ, we can do all things. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Don't carry your load alone. Don't carry a load of sin alone. You certainly don't carry the law, the, the word of the law. <laughs> try to commit or try to obey the law on your own. 
try to obtain salvation without following Christ. You can't do it. We need to come to Christ. We need to rest in Christ. It's a worthy cause. And to finish, I thought of this song as I was preparing this. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own His cause or blush to speak His name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? No, we need to get in the fight. We need to endure. We need to commit. We need to follow Christ.